I want you to take your Bibles, if you will, please, and turn with us to Philippians chapter 3 tonight. Philippians chapter number 3, we'll read two verses. We'll deal with primarily one verse um, tonight regarding knowing Christ. Philippians chapter number 3, verses 10 and 11. Verse number 10 is one of the more familiar verses out of the book of Philippians. And I trust that you are at least somewhat familiar with this verse. And of course, we see Paul's desire to know Christ and know more about him as he expresses this. Of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes in verses 10 and 11 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. This is our third look into Philippians chapter number 3. You remember in Philippians 3, verses 1, 2, and 3, we talked about the safeguard of Christian joy. You cannot be joyful in Christ and happy in sin at the same time, right? Joy is a safeguard to many things for the child of God. It's a safeguard to many things. We said, uh, I won't give you the outline, but I do want to mention two or three things as a reminder, if I may. Uh, Joy, Christian joy is like an undercurrent um, in the believer's life, much like the love of Christ is an uh, undercurrent, the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Uh, That is just a part of the believer's life. The only way it will not be, uh, will be, is if there be uh, something that is disjointed. I may say something more about that in a moment. uh, In our lives, it will not be on Christ's end. It will always be on our end. Here's the thing about Christian joy. Christian joy is not the result of our circumstances, right? Our circumstances can change. Um, Failed to mention Miss Glenda Buchanan for prayer tonight. She's having an MRI right about now. Uh, That's Brother Jonathan Thacker. You will remember Brother Thacker that preached on the parking lot some months back. That's his mother-in-law. She lives next door. He lives next door to her. And joy, Christian joy, is uh, it's dependent upon nothing except our walk with Christ. No matter our health changes from day to day, Our bank account may change from day to day, but Christian joy is a mainstay for the believer. The the joy that Christ gives is not dependent upon our circumstances. It's not dependent upon our temperament. We're all wired differently, right? Uh, All of us are. Even in our worship, some shout, some raise the hand, some weep, some testify. Maybe some among us that never has stood and verbally testified uh, in a testimony service, we're all wired a little bit differently. As a matter of fact, not everybody's as noble as Hayden and I. Amen, Hayden? Is that about right? I hear you and McKinley just moved up in the world. Yeah, stars over Tupelo now. <laughs> to rejoice in the Lord means to do this simply. It means to look to Jesus. It means to rest in Jesus. It means to trust Jesus. We close with some of the words that we sing around here from time to time. We'll give you all of them. 
My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds, shall for, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And that ought to be the thrust of our faith. We rest in Christ and in Christ alone. We move from there to chapter 3, verses 4 to 9. You remember Paul gave us a beware, a word of caution in verse 2. Use the word beware, a triple emphasis with the word. He said, beware of dogs, beware of the concision, uh, beware of evil workers, and beware of the concision. And, of course, he's talking about, the crowd he's talking about is one and the same. The Judaizers were quick to list their qualifications as to why they ought to be out front. And Paul said, if anybody had the criteria to do that, he said, I've got it. And he listed his criteria, his accomplishments in the faith, but he said it's good for nothing but the sewer. And that's what he said. He said, I count it all but loss uh, for Christ's sake. And that's the way we all should do. And we said this, and then we're moving on to where we are tonight. If you think you deserve it, it is not grace. If it calls attention to you, it is not grace. If you can earn it, it is not grace. If you can repay it, it is not grace. If it causes you or me to pat ourselves on the back, it is not grace. We really ought to let that soak in a while. You know what I'm about to say now, don't you? The Lord owes us nothing. None of us. We could get the call in the morning that two or three of us, that tutor, funeral home, is headed for our bodies. God's been good to give us another day of life. He owes us nothing. The Lord's given us salvation full and free through the cross of His only begotten. I didn't have to down the cross for my sin. Hell is not my home tonight. I have much to rejoice in. Tonight, simply, I want to speak to you about knowing Christ Knowing Christ. In this text, Paul is consumed with just this, with knowing Christ. Now, he does not write in verse number 10, that I may know about him. It's not what he says, is it? He says, I want to know him. Uh, Amanda and I have been married just shy of 35 years. And I, I know what she's thinking. She's thinking how blessed she is to be married to such a handsome devil as I. And among a lot of other things, what are you laughing at? But you know the old story. I can finish her sentences. She can finish mine. I've watched her make sacrifice. I think she's watched me make a few for her. And we know each other. I know what breaks her heart. She knows what breaks mine. I know what angers her. She knows what angers me. I know what brings her most joy in life. She knows what brings me most joy. We know each other. I cannot imagine having to finish my race and God calling her home first. I don't know what that would be like. I don't want to know what that would be like. I know her. I love her. I respect her. And the more I know about Christ, the more I love him. The more I see him, uh, the greater he is in my heart. Now, he's not, he does not become greater, nor larger, nor bigger. 
But the more I learn about him, the larger my love grows and my appreciation grows for him. So Paul, as he says that I may know him, he's not just interested in hearing a sermon about him. He's not interested in a book recommendation tonight. He's not interested in a new song, hearing a new song being sung about him. He wants to know him. He wants to know him more intimately, more personally. He wants to know him. On a personal level, he wants to know him. Now, let me say this about knowing him. I think you probably have heard me say this along the way. It dawned on me the other day. We just finished nine years and have already begun our tenth year here. So you probably have heard me say this since we've been in the book of Philippians. When Paul says that I may know him, you've probably heard me say this. Uh, Paul, when writing um, to the believers at Philippi, he's not talking about knowing Christ in salvation. He was saved 30 years prior to pinning down this epistle. He's talking about knowing him in, again in his personal walk. There's a, a writer mentioning songs. There's a writer by the name of Eliza Edmonds Hewitt. Uh, she was an invalid most of her life, and she studied her Bible and meditated upon it, wrote poetry. And often her poetry was put into uh, music and became gospel hymns, uh, three of which we sing around here. She was the penman of, There is sunshine in my soul today. An invalid wrote that. An invalid that studied her Bible and prayed. She wrote, there's sunshine in my heart today from a bed. She also wrote the song that we sing, When We All Get to Heaven. She had heaven on her mind. Laying flat of her back, had heaven on her mind. How about that? Can you imagine somebody lying flat of their back, asking for a pencil and a piece of paper? What are you going to write, grandmother? I'm going to write about uh, when we all get to heaven. That's camp meeting material right there, right? But she's the one that wrote more about Jesus. Won't give you all the song, but you know it by heart, don't you? More about Jesus would I know, more of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. That's what Paul is saying here in this verse. More about Jesus would I know, more of his saving grace to show. He said, I want to know more about him more about Christ. And so we thank God for this. And we want to know more about him, right? And if we don't, there's something wrong on our end. If we don't want to know more about the one who saved us, the one who died for us, the one who bled for us, shed his blood to cover our sin, to forgive us our sin, to appease the Father, to propitiate for our sin, so that he may adopt us into his family, so that heaven may be our home, so that we may see him face to face one day after a while. Well, if we don't want to know him, we probably do not know him. I read a couple of different men, read after a couple of different men that included the same humorous tale about this mom. She heard her boy, about five years of age, screaming. So she steps into the bedroom, and the little two-year-old sister had her hands, had two handfuls of his hair. And she walked over and gently put her hands on the little girl's hands and would pry the fingers away. And she told her son, she said, now listen, she said, she really doesn't understand what that feels like or she would have never done it. Don't hold it against her. She hadn't made two steps out of the room till the little girl is screaming. She rushed back in. She said, what's the matter? He said, she knows now. (laughs) You would think the great apostle Paul, you would think he knew, wouldn't you? He does know. 
He is the one that Christ struck, struck down off horseback on the Damascus Road. His Shekinah brilliance was so bright that it outshone the noonday sun. He spoke to him in an audible voice. He, at the time, a lost man, Saul, Saul. In essence, he said, Saul, you know better. You know who you're running from. You know who you're fighting. He said, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks, isn't it, Saul? And, of course, he was born again there on the Damascus Road. Uh, Paul had been stoned, I personally believe, stoned to death. Acts 14 records the record of it. He wrote of it in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. He said, I knew a man above 14 years ago called up into the third heaven, whether in the spirit or in the body. He said, I, he said, I cannot tell. But uh, God gave him some things there that he couldn't share, didn't he? Paul's desires recorded here in this 10th verse, where he writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made being made. That's what he's doing in your life. You may wonder sometimes why do things go the way they're going. It's because he's making you. What's he making you? The Bible says being made conformable unto his death. J. Dwight Pentecost was a seminary professor, an author, a conference speaker. As a matter of fact, Polo and back and forth with a preacher friend of mine today, we were uh, trying to show what, how we have our libraries laid out and what we keep on hand. Just arm's length, where we can just spin in our chairs and get what means much to us. And I got to my eschatology section. That's um, that's the doctrine of last things. J. Dwight Pentecost has the standard left behind. Things to come. That's the book. If you were to go to Bible college or Bible seminary, you'd have to go through that and be tested on that book. Big, thick book on things to come. The doctrine of last things. J. Dwight Pentecost once, he asked the question, what makes some Christians spiritual giants and what makes others remain the same? It's a good question, isn't it? And uh, he went on to answer that with the principle of appetite. He said, some have an appetite. Others seem not to have so much of one. It's pretty much how it goes, isn't it? An appetite. We ought to thirst for the things of God. We should have a hunger for the things of God. Paul has a passion for Christ and for knowing Christ's appetite. I thought about that. Um, Summer before last, Amanda and I sat on the front porch and we would drink coffee there, these mud sparrows. You see them. They build their nest every year. They'll hatch two or three little ones. And we watched them. For about two weeks, diligently, they'd fly out, they'd bring a piece of mud or they'd bring a piece of a twig and they'd right up under the eave of the porch. That's where they built their nest. No sooner than they got it built, uh, the female laid two eggs. Then, of course, she goes broody. That's the way nature works. She sat on the eggs until they were hatched. It was two young ones, two little ones. They soon learned that mother would leave the nest and when she would, when she would come back, perch on the side of the nest, they knew it was feeding time and their mouths were wide open. I wonder how many of us came that way tonight. Or came this way, came that way this past Sunday. We get what we come for. We get what we're prepared to take home. And so may we be the same way. And in essence, Paul is saying here, I have my heart wide open, my mind, 
is wide open for Christ and the things of Christ. And may it be that way with us. Now, here's what we know from Scripture. We know that God knows all about us, right? Let me give you just a few verses. Psalm 103, verse 14, the Bible says, He knoweth, for he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are but dust. I'm glad he remembers that that's all we are, is dust. David Barnett says we're just a bunch of, a bunch of mud, mud balls with sticks sticking out. That's about all we are. But God knows that's all we are. Matthew 10, 30, Jesus said, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. He knows all about us. He said in, in Luke chapter 12, verse number 7, but even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are all of more value than many sparrows. Psalm 139, where we read from Sunday morning. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. So he knows us. But the question that, of course, would surface from this verse is do we know him? Consider with me, if you will, first of all, and I'll be brief with each of these thoughts, but consider with me, first of all, there in verse number 10, the first phrase, the knowledge desired of Paul. He writes that I may know him. That I may know him. How would you have felt tonight if I had just come in here and said, I want to read one phrase out of the Bible? And I would have read that phrase, that I may know him. How would that settle in on your heart? That's enough. That's enough in any of our lives. That we would be still and know him. He, of course, he goes on and writes. Now, notice the order. Notice the order of this listing regarding knowing him. Watch this order. He writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable into his death. Did you see the order of that? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So he starts with resurrection. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. He moves from resurrection to sufferings. Then he moves from sufferings and he says being made conformable into his death. Now, the gospel belongs to Christ. Now, that order concerning Christ, and it only belongs to him, is suffering, death, then resurrection. But listen carefully to what I'm going to say. Sometimes we're self-appointed martyrs, right? Sometimes we're self-appointed martyrs. Matter of fact, most of our valleys are self-inflicted. You cannot suffer for Christ unless you know something of his resurrection power. You'll never be agreeable to being made conformable unto his death. You'll never welcome that until you know something about the resurrection power. Now, that's the truth. The death, burial, and resurrection, that order belongs to Christ you and I will never be willing to be made conformable unto his death until first there be 
that power touch our life. So there's the knowledge desired of Paul. Notice that Paul desires to know more of, first of all, he writes, the power of Christ's resurrection. He's talking about the dynamic of the Christian life. When he writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, this word power is a familiar word uh, to believers. It comes from the word dunamis. Dunamis is where we get our words dynamite, dynamo, and dynamic. It's the power. The power that reached into that other world and raised Christ from the dead is the same power the child of God may be plugged into. Now, sometimes we wonder why we're not experiencing the power of God in our lives. Here's where the disconnect comes in. We uh, mentioned to you Sunday that we, we had the kids and grandkids over Saturday evening. Uh, we, we cooked and then we shot fireworks. And As a matter of fact, I was still smelling gunpowder when I came in here Sunday. But one of the games the kids all gathered around and played was in the backyard. There's this, um, I don't know how to describe it other than just describe it like I see it. It's just a little unicorn. It's a kiddie pool. It's a unicorn, and it's got sprinkler all the way around it. And there were two slides that the kids pulled up, and they those sprinklers would get the slides wet. They'd jump on the slide, slide into the kiddie pool, out into the grass. And, boy, they's having a time, except for Lucy. She didn't like all the activity. And she didn't like the sprinkler hitting her. She wanted that. When everything would clear out, she'd say, cut it off, Pop Pop, cut it off. And so I'd kink the hose, and the, the sprinkler would die down to nothing nearly. Well, she'd get in, and she'd wade and splash and sit down. Then when the kids would crowd her again, she'd get up, and she'd get out of their way. Sometimes I would unkink the hose, and she would say, behave, Pop Pop, cut it off. I was cutting off the supply. Sometimes sin cuts off the supply of the power of Christ in our life. Sometimes it may be sheer laziness. But disobedience will do it. In one form or another, disobedience will interfere with the flow of this business of the power of Christ, the power of Christ's resurrection in our lives. Sam Gordon, he, he wrote in his commentary on this particular passage about a Frenchman who became a British citizen. Uh, he liked the way they did things. He wrote of enjoying the Brits' way of living. And so he became a British citizen. One friend inquired of him and asked him, said, what has that profited you? And he said, well, among many things. Uh, he said, there are many things. He said, but one of which, he said, I've come to learn now that I am a British citizen that instead of losing the Battle of Waterloo, I won. You say, what does the resurrection of Christ do for you? I won. I don't have to hold my head in shame. I don't come in here and pick on any of you. I have nothing to prove. I, I don't have to come in here and do like some of my independent friends. Embarrass half the crowd. And speak vulgar. And Some of us have sat under preaching like that. We just come in here and preach the Bible. If the Holy Ghost don't do the work, it ain't going to get done anyhow. The resurrection of Christ from the grave, that's the bedrock doctrine that our faith is anchored in. Without a risen Savior from the grave, we have no faith. We have no Savior. 
We have no reason to come back Sunday without a resurrected uh, Lord. There was a teacher. She had assigned her students to write a paper on the world's greatest living man. As you can imagine, some wrote on the sitting president, past president, sports figures, and celebrities. One little fellow, he wrote on Jesus Christ. When she passed her papers back out as they were coming to the desk to receive them, the little fellow, she said to him, she said, you wrote an excellent paper. She said, but I ask you to write on the greatest living man. He simply replied, Jesus lives. He got an A plus for his paper, by the way, once he made the statement. And he does live. Now, here's what we do as a church body. Every Lord's Day and every Wednesday, we assemble together because he does live. Forsaking not the assembling of yourselves, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves, together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I wonder if there's anybody listening to me here tonight. You're harassed by sin or temptation or lust or whatever it would be. Or maybe you're harassed by your past. There'd be a few. We've got some in different states that listen to our Facebook feed. I wonder if there's anybody that's listening there. You're harassed by something in your life that is not of God. How do you overcome that? You do it through the power of the resurrected Lord. Listen to two verses that Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians. Says better, of course, what I just said. Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20. Here's what the Bible says. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So we learn in those two verses that the power of the resurrection that Paul's writing about in Philippians 3 and 10 is how we overcome and live the life of victory as a believer. Now, the resurrection of Christ gives us power to live um, an abundant life. But a lot of people say, Preacher, I just can't live the Christian life. Um, I, I remember when I was at Pleasantdale, um, they every year at Thanksgiving would have a joint service in the community with the Union Church of the Nazarene. And they said, Preacher, when, they, when we go over there, you'll preach. And when they come over here, he'll preach. And I said, No, I'll preach. They're welcome to come, but I'll preach over here. And if he wants to preach over there, he can preach over there. But I don't believe what they believe about keeping the Ten Commandments and that getting you to heaven. I don't believe you can live a perfect life outside Christ. You are a sinner. But some of the older, gray haired members, after I said that, kind of come around and we were standing around. And uh, they, they told about uh, a dear lady and her husband. He got to go into church and evidently got under conviction. And during the invitation time, walked the aisle, and the preacher was beside him, and she walked in and called his name, walked up beside him and called his name and said, if you can't live it, don't pray it because you got to live it or it's no good. That's not the Christian life. You can't live the Christian life outside a surrendered, a yielded will to Christ. You say, preacher, can I live? Can I have power to overcome the flesh, the world, and the devil? According to the word of God, you can, but not outside this power Paul writes of. Notice, if you will, thirdly, 
Paul desires to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Then he says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's not part of Christianity we like to think about. We think about living the Christ life, living the Christian life. This word fellowship speaks of a joint participation. And again, notice the order here. It is resurrection power and then the ability to suffer for Christ. Um, Suffering comes two ways in the believer's life. Number one, it can come by way of persecution. 2 Timothy 3, 2 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Here in the States, we know very little about persecution. We know what it is to be talked about, to be mocked. I know what it is to preach and someone stick their tongue out at me, if you can believe that. That's not persecution. I know what it is to have anonymous letters written, not many through the years, but I know what that is. That's not persecution. There were many preachers across the southeast when these lockdowns hit over COVID cried persecution. If you want to know what persecution is like, catch a flight and then take a boat ride and then walk into the Himalayan region where Vito Aomi where he preaches and risks his life to carry the gospel and share it with one person at a time. You'll know something about persecution. He don't know that he'll live to see the sun come up tomorrow, but it's in his heart to preach the gospel. How many of you remember in our last missions conference meeting Brother Ernesto Condra? He was the first missionary to the killing fields. Risk his life. Christ saved him. He had a job that paid him well, you remember? He left it all behind and went to the killing fields. Risk his life. He's seen many people saved by the grace of God. We don't know anything about persecution. John Bunyan, I thank you again for sending my wife and I to England. We went three years ago. One of the places we went was where John Bunyan pastored. He was jailed for 13 years before he even got trial. You know what he was jailed for? He was jailed for preaching out in the open without a license. He'd been reprimanded, but preach was in him. After 13 years of being in the Bedford, Bedford, England, England, being in the Bedford jail, um, he finally uh, had a trial. And they told him, they reprimanded him again, and told him they would release him if he would not preach in Christ's name again. He's been quoted down through the years. His statement to the authorities were, uh, was this. He said, if I were released today, I'd preach Christ tomorrow, so help me God. And they kept him for another three months. What about you tonight? COVID has shown no <laughs> persecution to any of us. Now, there are some around the world that has because of it. Because they preached when they were told not to preach, even outside. But we didn't see any of that. Didn't see any of it. Often suffering for Christ means suffering through various trials in this walk of life. Let me give you just one verse of Scripture. You ponder this in your own time, 1 Peter 5.10. Peter was writing during the days of the diaspora. It was times when Jewish Christians had been converted. The Jews, many of them converted to Christ. 
They were scattered throughout the countryside. Peter wrote much to those suffering Christians. And, but he wrote in 1 Peter 5.10, listen to what he said about suffering, what it does in the life of the believer. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, listen to what he says, after that ye have suffered a while. I like that a while business, don't you? That must mean there's a reprieve coming sometime. Listen to what he says our suffering does for us. It says it make you perfect. He's going to give us four particulars. This first one is, shall make you perfect. In other words, he'll get you through the third grade and put you into the fourth. Next time a trial comes, he'll run you through that curriculum. And when you get it, he'll move you on to the fifth grade. Eventually, one of these days, you'll reach a place of maturity. That's the idea. He says, we'll make you, make, uh, make you perfect. Then he said, establish, strengthen, settle you. Don't you like believers? It's just, they can hold their hand out and it's just as steady. You remember when we were introducing the life of Joseph, we said about Joseph that those who have suffered and do suffer, they have an advantage over the rest of us. They have an insight and an experience of Christ the rest of us don't have. Shake them up. You can't. They'll follow their little walkers to church. They'll tithe of their little social security check. They'll pray over their meal they eat in the morning, noon, and night. And they'll look for the return of Christ every day of their lives. Settle. Paul desires to live his life selfless. Look what he writes in verse number 10. He writes, finally, he writes, being made conformable unto his death. This word conformable, it's an interesting word. It means to bring to the same form with another person. To bring to the same form of another person. Being made conformable unto his death. Among other things, the sanctifying work of the Lord in the life of the believer is to make us more like Jesus. You say, preacher, I want to look more like Jesus. You will if you're saved. You will. Because I'll promise you, he will not leave you to yourself if you're saved. Paul wants to live a selfless life. Is that not what Christ did? He gave of himself. He gave himself. He gave himself up for the likes of us. The perfect for the imperfect. The sinless for the sinful. He taught us how we ought to live our lives. Selfless lives. Here's Paul's personal testimony. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, then in Galatians 2, 20. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to what he says. He said, I die daily. It's key to living the Christian life is dying. He wrote in Galatians 2, 20, that familiar verse, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. George Mueller is one of the greatest missionaries regarding boys' homes and girls' homes over the ages. George Mueller is the, is the uh, brother that is referred to by missionaries often. When they, when they quote his testimony, he had, a, he had an orphanage 
and had at one time, I forget how many thousands of children, he never asked for a dime. He never asked for any support. Mueller was a praying man. Much of what he did, he did long after the average person in our country, in the States, would have um, signed up for their Social Security. When he was 92 years of age, he wrote in his journal that he was discouraged, that he could only preach four times a day. He couldn't hold up to preach anymore. When he started, he had a few plates, forks, spoons, and a pitcher he could catch water in out of the well. That's all he had. Went before a mission board, and they told him he's too old. He started one of the greatest works, Christian works, orphanages this world's ever seen. George Mueller, Mueller was once asked the secret of his life. This is his response. He said, there was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller. His opinions, his preferences, his taste, and his will. He said, I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame, even of my brethren or friends. And since then, I, since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. I started to call Brother Billy Barho. I'm almost done. <laughs> but I started to call Brother Billy Barho. He's in his 80s now, I think. I, I met him in the early 90s. I see him about every year at Brother Ronnie Barefield's Bible conference. He comes out. He pastors in Salado, Texas. He lives an hour and a half. He and Miss Glenda live an hour and a half from Salado. Last week of March every year, they host what's called Days of Refreshing Bible Conference. And uh, I haven't been out there since about 95. I haven't, I've either got a meeting or something going on. I've not been able to get back, but we've been friends all these years. He made an impression on my life. Let me tell you how he made that impression. Some of his heroes that he spoke of, as he would speak of them, I was in that conference three or four years. I'd ride out with Brother Bearfield and a young preacher hungry and yearning for anything I could get. Brother Barhold talked about uh, one of his heroes was Lester Roloff. And... He said, you know, he said, I had the privilege of going to the Southwide Fellowship. Would have been hundreds, if not over a thousand preachers and people in that meeting. He said, I knew Brother Roloff was preaching, and he said, I couldn't wait to get there to meet him. He said, we heard a round of preachers, then we all, were all led and pointed to the dining hall. And he said, I just knew he'd be with the other preachers that were scheduled as featured preachers at the Southwide Fellowship. He said, so I looked for him at those preachers, them and their wives. He said, I knew Brother Roloff had to be there, but he wasn't there. He said, I thought, well, maybe he's not got through the lunch line yet. He said, so I started way back at the back of the line where I was, and my eyes moved. He said, I didn't see him. He said, I looked through the lunch line where people were filling their plates with the noon meal. He said, he wasn't there. And he said, then I saw him. He was at the end of the line at the tea table, pouring tea, serving people he didn't even know. And he said, it was at a time in my life when I was full of myself and thought everybody ought to hear me preach. I could fix the world's problems. And he said, in the doorway of that dining hall, God broke me and I wept and repented before him. He said, God took one of my heroes and showed me what Christ's likeness was all about. That's what Paul's writing about. John the Baptist said, he must increase. I must decrease. In closing, let me just read verse 11, and I'm just going to quote a writer word for word. 
Verse number 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, what's Paul saying here? Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying he doesn't know whether or not he's going to be saved in the end. But what he is saying, in essence, is he don't know how he's going to lead this walk of life. Either through death and then his body be resurrected or in the rapture. He's be very candid with us. One writer wrote it like this. And with this, I close. He wrote, Paul isn't expressing uncertainty about his future in heaven. He's simply acknowledging that he doesn't know the route by which God will bring him to the finish line. And you don't either, friend. You say, preacher, what should be our heartbeat tonight? Same as Paul's. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, knowing Christ. May our heart beat for him. Let's stand with this miss in a word of prayer.